0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Anne Gordon, here with my friend, and your so day for the day, Masachat Yoma, Daf Mem Page 47, okay, the fifth chapter, chapter, or in this chapter, I should say, we spend a lot more time delving into uh, the crux that is not, you know, that does not have parallels in the, in other days right? Meaning if we had a Korban tamid of the morning of Yom Kippur, and we had a Korban tamid of, it relates to the Korban tamid of the morning of every, So that's that's what our experience has been. How Yom Kippur day is different from other days, but also where it's similar. Here we're talking about specifically the Avoda, that is really about what the Kohen Gadol does on Yom Kippur, that only he does, that he only does on once, you know, just on this one day of the year, and and all of the details of that, and the thing, of course, that I find fascinating about this is that if we didn't have this chapter, right? If we didn't have these details, so we would never know, right? The and ever in the history of Jewish history of the, having a Beit Hamikdash needed this information. Meaning we learn this information because it's Torah and it's good, and therefore we learn. But in terms of practical application, practical use, the number of koanim gedolim who went into the kodesh kodashim who needed to do, who needed to know this, and how many koanim were prepping alongside of them, I understand it happened every year. But every year is still only once a year, and it, it's remarkable to me in terms of the same way that the Torah will preserve adat yachid. Right, I'm a minority opinion. That is never used and totally rejected and yet it's preserved for us i would say that here too we have an awful lot of torah halacha, details all of that that is preserved even though for the vast bulk of you know jewish humanity that was ever going to see the text that we're reading they would never have seen the actual kodesh Kodashim or the temple worship of this part it's very different in that way than let's say um the communal meal that becomes the seder throughout, you know, right. There's, there's, I'm not saying that that was practical and in, in that we're not doing it in the same practical way nowadays, but it has, it has implications for, for the everybody. And this doesn't so much. And yet we have the text.
1: That was a great introduction. And the only thing I'm going to add before you read the Mishnah is this Staff has one of the more famous women in Talmud stories. So, we're going to end up spending a lot of time on that. Uh, we're not going to get to vet so much. And this is, you know, just maybe if we do round two of this, we'll do vet in round two to, of talking Talmud. Uh, but sometimes we get to these and with such sort of famous stories that we, you know, I, I texted Ann when I was prepping and I was like, oh, it's this Daph. And then it's almost like, I, you know, I'm not even paying attention. Well, I am. But, you know, to what the rest of the daph is talking about.
0: So much suspense, we're going to get there very fast. Okay, the Mishnah opens, meaning the parak opens with the Mishnah. They bring out a spoon and the coal pan, the, the pan that they would put the coals in, to the Kohen Gadol, right? Because he's going to now do the avoda, the service of the incense. And the service of the incense, as I say, is really the focus of the Yom Kippur, uh, you know, the Yom Kippur, service that is done by the Kohen Gadol in the Kodesh Kodeshim, the part that nobody knows about. We're not talking about taking a goat out to the wilderness, right? This is very much what they call Lifnei V'Lifnei, very much in the inner chambers of the Beit HaMikdash. kaf. So what does he do? He scoops handfuls from the incense, meaning the substance of the incense, and he puts it onto the spoon. So I feel like, wait, what? Because Usually you use a spoon to do the scooping, right? As opposed to using your hands to do the scooping and put the food onto the spoon. Like I'm, this is more like the way we joke about toddlers doing things, right? But this is the way he's supposed to do it, right? And part of it is because it's an actual measurement because it's according to the body of the Kohen Gadol, how large are his hands? Somebody with large hands, Will be using that much more incense because he has scooped up that much amount of incense corresponding to his the size of his hands and a Cohen Gretel with small hands would obviously you know take less um and that is the measurement meaning the measurement is a specific a very specific specific handful right the the number the the amount of the handful, but the handful is measured by the person so it has to be by, it has to be the backwards way, right? Meaning he takes the amount by his hand and then puts it into the spoon because he's going to use the spoon. Uh, and so really what he does then is he takes that spoon in his, and the spoon is in his left hand, and the measure of the amount, the coal pan is in his right hand, right? And I, I assume, and we'll see more of this in the Gemara, but um or even I think it's part that you're not going to talk about, but it's there, right? The coal pan is a larger, heavier item. And I would say this is a bias, right? The assumption that the right hand is stronger because really on average, the odds are better that somebody who is, the odds are better that somebody is right-handed than that they they are left-handed, meaning like it or not, that's just the statistics, right? So the coal pan goes to the right hand, the spoon is his left hand. And this would be one of those questions, I think the same way that, um, there are all kinds of things that you do with your dominant hand that is called the right hand in halacha. And then it's it's translated into dominant hand as opposed to specifically and only the right hand. And I don't know whether that would be the case here, but it wouldn't surprise me if it were.
1: I just want to remind everybody that we actually learned in brachos on das memhei, um, and I did have to look this up, don't worry, when I actually saw this mishnah, that there is a question about whether or not kohanim who are left-handed can do Avodah, meaning that whether you can use the left hand to do any part of the Avodah. That's not really what I want to spend some time talking about. But Anne, I thought about that when I read this Mishnah um, and also, you know, uh, some of the discussion that you gave around there.
0: Um, Yeah, no, I just I want to say, I do think you're doing, I think the prevailing view Certainly in the absence of an actual beta HaMiknash, the prevailing view is that the left handedness is considered some kind of blemish that it doesn't count. There is a view, and I don't know whether it would be put into place if we were to have a third t- temple right now, that you know, to be a right handed person and do things in a left handed way is like dishonoring the work you're doing. But if you're a left handed person using your left hand as again, as the dominant hand, then that may be, according to this view, it may be that it doesn't do the dishonor at all because you're using your stronger hand and that's the point.
1: Right, and remember that when we learned the Mishnah in the paris, previous parak about, you know, the scan and the bait of uh, by it standing next to the coin with the lots and there was even a discussion if the lot should always be in somebody's right hand and never put in the left hand. So we see left-handedness is always an issue, but well, that to be continued for another time. Um, so we got into this discussion about uh you know the the question of how large people's hands well sort of that you take this handful um of the uh of the Ketorah. and so one of the things that's mentioned here is de rabbi ishmael ben right that there was a case with rabbi ishmael ben kimchi um where it says zo right that the uh and it's talking about which hand you you held you held uh, which end, right, that the shovel of the coals sort of weighs more than the ladle of the incense. Um, and even if they're both equal, we wouldn't make an exception in terms of equal and weight. We wouldn't make an exception to which hand it needed to be held in. And this is the case of, of Rabbi Yishmael bin Kimchid, um, that, you know, that it needed to. And now it tells us some interesting stories about him. Amr Alev Rabbi bin Kimchi. So again, this is a Kohen Gadol and they said, his hands were so large that he was able to basically scoop up four cabin full of incense in his cup full hands The Omer, and he would say as he did it, So he says, all women received Zarid, okay? But my mother, my mother Zarid, rose up to the roof, okay? So it was better... Than anybody else's. So, you know what the question is is exactly um, you know, what Zarid is. And so the Gemara says, Amriba <laughs> Arsan. So some people say that he didn't say the expression of Zareed, but he said an expression of the word arsan, right? And that this statement of his was understood by Rabbi Bar, by, uh, sorry, bar Yonatan. I said Yochan. Yonatan, Rabbi So Rabbi Bar Yonatan said in the name of Rabbi Yekhil, our son yafel Our son is beneficial for a sick person. Zara. And some say that what he was really talking about was the semen from which he was formed. We then move on to uh, a different interpretation. That actually Rabbi Yishmael was talking about was the semen from which he was formed. Rabbi And now we're going to have this very interesting interpretation of Rabbi Bahu. The Rabbi Abahu Rami, Rabbi Abahu shows a contradiction between two psukim. The first Pesu comes from Shmuel Bet, chapter 22, verse 40, and the second one comes from Tehillim, chapter 18, verse 40. And they both describe Melchama with this word uh, meaning like you. we normally translate it as, you girded me. But in the verse in Shmuel, it's missing an aleph, and in the verse in Tehillim, it has is spelt with an aleph, right? So the one in Shmuel says, the tazreni, uh, uh la milchama, right? You girded me, uh, Tazreini chayol la milchama. You, you girded me with strength for battle. And the one in Teelim is spelled, uh with an Aleph in the middle. But Tazreini chayol la milchama. And so the question is, why is it once with Aleph and once without an Aleph? Amar David li'pnei Kadosh Baruch Hu, Ribono uh Zartani the Zars So Hashem says, so David says to Hashem. You winnowed me and you girded me with strength, right? It's a planned word, zartani, vizarz, vizarz tani. So without that extra zion, it's that you winnowed me. And with the extra zion, it means you girded me. So without an olive, it's it's connected to the word zara, which means to winnow, winnowed. Um, but when it's spelled with an olive, it means sort of this word of azar of, of girdle. So what he's saying, what David Amelch is saying to Hashem is, is that you winnowed, basically, the drop of semen from which he came from, right, and only used the good parts to create me. And later, you take this amazing creation that was made with this incredible drop of semen, and and girded that person, um, that girded that person with strength. And so, I think the idea that it's sort of talking about here is is that, um, you know, so then some of the first can get into a very detailed description about the sperm itself and, and how the sperm works and how it fertilizes the egg. But part of what it's trying to say is that one interpretation of what Rabbi Shmuel was saying is, is that basically, you know, he was born with these very large hands, um, either if you're going to say the zarit or the arsan, which is basically two products that are made from um, wheat and so these were sort of foods that were typically given to pregnant women um, because the idea was that it was supposed to strengthen the woman and their unborn child. So those are the first two. And so his unusual large hands was due to the fact that his mother either consumes a lot of zarid or a lot of arsan. And it's interesting that that sort of gives it, I think, a little bit more to the mother's credit. This third interpretation of Ravi Abahu puts an emphasis on the semen that he was created from which I, from a feminist point of view is interesting to me because it sort of takes it away from his mother and makes it much more about his father. And one of the things that's interesting about these passages about Rabbi Yishmael about Rabbi bin, bin Kimchit is there's an emphasis about his mother, So, which we'll see as we continue to read in the next part, right? Amur al love, and then Anna, I'll let you comment before you get to the kicker part here. Amur love Rabbi bin Kimchid. They also said about Rabbi Yishmael bin Kimchit. One time he was on Yom Kippur, the story takes place, right? Which is also interesting to sort of see the coin Gadol sort of like just doing non coin Gadol related items on Yom Kippur itself, right? So he was talking to a non Jew, to an Arab in the Shuk, the Nita Zet, al BeGadav, and a drop of saliva sprayed from his mouth onto Rabbi Shmuel, which basically made him tame on Yom Kippur. The Nichnas Yeshevav Achiv Vishimesh Tartab. And so his brother, Yishavei, basically had to be the Kohen Gadol instead of him because he ended up being Tamei on, um, on Yom Kippur itself. And so their mother, Kimchid, it was amazing because she was Zoha to have two children who served as the as the Kohen Gadol on one day. And then they tell the same story. And then they tell the same story. Right. One time he went out to the out of the temple, also in Yom Kippur, and was talking to like an important lord in the market. The And again, the same thing happened. A little bit of saliva came out of his mouth and sprayed him on one of his clothes. So then again, he becomes Tameh. So his brother Yosef had to become the Kohen Gadol and did all the Kohen Gadol things that needed to get done in Yom Kippur. And so his mother, Kimchid. So two of her sons serving as the Kohen Gadol on the same day. Um, So this is why Rabbi Abahu's interpretation to me is even doubly strange. And we even saw in the previous parak when it was giving a description of the clothes that the Kohen Gadol did, that there sort of is a special relationship that's emphasized between the Kohen Gadol and his mother, right? It gave this description of how the Kohen Gadol's mother would prepare special clothes for him. That somehow having a child who's a Kohen Gadol is really an, it, 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 it's a, a praise to the mother. There's really no mention of the father there. I, I wonder if some of this almost comes from Khana and Shmuel, right? How Khana basically like gives Shmuel over to be a Kohen. I'm not quite sure what this connection is. So Rabbi Abahu's interpretation is even more puzzling to me because it really takes away the attribute of the Kohen Gadzels. And here in this case, particularly of Rabbi Shmuel's greatness, from his mother, which seems to be where we always attribute a coin gadol's praiseworthiness, seems to be much more tied to his maternal side and wants mm-hmm. to make it, you know, paternal in nature.
0: So I, I also picked up on this, meaning it's hard not to. The fact that he's called, they are named, you know, Ben Kimchit. How often do we know of, you know, Hebrew names? Where and where you're not davening for somebody for rachamin from you know mercy from God for their health or for their life or something like that, where we do call on the mother's name, but for the most part everything is ben the father, not ben the mother. And yet here they're all ben the mother, ben kimchi. She is female. It's um it's an interesting question because of course they couldn't come to be the Cohen Gadol if it weren't for their father's kahuna. So I don't have an answer here. I, I'm you know. I think it's a sharp question. What exactly this is all about? And so maybe
1: Uh, that's why Rabbi Abahu brings it back to the father. Because exactly like you said, it is really transmitted through the father. A Yisrael woman who's married to a Kohen, those children are, to a male Kohen, those children are Kohanic. So maybe that's why Rabbi Abahu sort of brings it back that way.
0: Right. And so... The next bit, which is the famous part, which you mentioned before, the this very famous statement is about Khit and her seven sons. And I think it's interesting, uh, Yordana, what you've just said about perhaps Khanna and the seven sons, or even the the original version. I think doesn't have a name, right? There's, I wonder, I wonder how much of this becomes like some kind of motif within the narrative that the details, you know, are then presented to line up, um, which sounds a little bit you know, more creative, perhaps, than we think of the Gemara being, as opposed to simply accounting for what happened. Here, we actually have enough detail that I would say the preface really does just account for what happened. We have a story, specifically, that again, you know, I'm going to read it inside. She has She has seven sons, and all seven of them served as Kohen Gadol. So, when I first heard this story, I couldn't figure out why this was a positive thing. Because as far as it seemed to me that how could anybody's brother end up being the Cohen Guttle in his place, it must mean that the first guy died. And that is not the case. And I should say this loud and clear, meaning I was simply wrong. I didn't understand enough. I was young to the to the story itself. And also the people telling the story were focusing on something else, not about the Cohen Guttle aspect of it at all. But in any case, the point is, Masit Oh sorry. So I, I want to get to the next part next. So what happens is what you're doing, the part that you read, where that one of them got tummy. So the next one served. So all it takes is everybody, one, one after another, we can have a domino, you know, scenario, everybody ends up getting tummy. And so they all serve because that's the next one in line. And it isn't some kind of tragic story. It's more simply a matter of, uh, technicality, logistically, whatever. Honestly, I still think, I'm not sure why this is high praise for Kimchit, because on the one hand, all of her sons got to serve as a kohen gadol. On the other hand, what that means is that none of them really finished out the service of the day, because because each one of them is rendered tummy and has to step down, and the next one comes in line. Okay, so what happens? They asked her, <laughs> What did you do that you merited this? Meaning, clearly, this seemed to be something that was a gift to her, as pre, in in praise of her, right? That she would have this merit of all of the sons being coin gedolim. So, what did you do? I'm I'm She doesn't even flinch. She doesn't say, "What are you talking about?" She says, "I know exactly what I did." From my whole life, meaning, uh, it's hard to know if this is from my whole life or from the married life, but right, she because. There's still a question of, you know, how do you wear your hair, even not married, right? But then afterwards, it's about Kisui Roche covering one's head, covering one's hair, however it's going to be defined here. So she says, in all of her days, the beams of her house never saw her braids of hair. So what that means then is, again, technically speaking, it means that she's not changing. She's not removing her Kisui Roche. In any way that kind of airs out her head in the whole house, right? She's it always, always, always. She's got some kind of kisui on her head. Amrula um, uh, Asuke v'lohoi, and they said to her. And I actually love this response from from the from the rabbis. They say to her, many other women also did this, meaning they treat. Sneut and Kisri Roche here this aspect with the same severity and some same sincerity and seriousness that you have and yet they did not succeed they did not have their sons become Kohanim Gudolim to such a degree you must have been granted this special thing right meaning lo it didn't it didn't help them it didn't work for them so so they don't quite accept her answer and the reason of course I love it is because so often nowadays somebody or other is going to present what I call you know like the the input output machine, like you do this thing and the output is, is a given, right? You make sure that you cover your hair at all the time in your house. And the output is that your children will be tzaddikim, will be righteous. And there's no such guarantee in that way. And not only that, the Chachamim here are saying to her, you know, yeah, that's a nice thing, but that can't, it has to be more than that, which, um, for all the number of people who bring this story to highlight the modesty aspect of it, right? To highlight the this value that is presented as some kind of um, reward worthy uh, conduct to make sure that you you conduct yourself with such snoot, snoot that your hair is never uncovered in your home. That's not the end of the Gemara here. The piece that we just said is like, Hashem said, "Other women did so, and they didn't get the same benefit. You can't just plug in the behavior and get out the outcome. You actually have to be righteous, and that is not, you know, that's not just a matter of a technicality of your kisui rosh. That's a matter of who are you really that you should get benefit, um, but you know that you should get a reward that your each son should have the chance to be the kohen gadol and do this, you know, participate in this avoda."
1: Well, I will say this about this this particular gemara. I actually never saw the piece that comes before it that talks about, you know, how his brothers, how it turned out that he and his brothers ended up serving on the same day. Did you also think they died? Because I always thought they died. Did I think what? That they died. Yes. I always thought it was that they died. And so I always was given this Gemara in a very negative context that in other words, You know, this whole thing about not having your house ever see your hair is quoted by the Zohar. Let's just put that out there. And this is the Gemara that they cite for that. And, you know, and that when I have learned it in other contexts, and again, this is just a reflection of places where I've learned. It's always like, yeah, but if you have seven sons or Kohanim and she lived to see all of them, it must mean that they all died. But that's really not what this Gamara says about it, actually.
0: So I, right. It's so I, I get
1: me it. rethink, you know, something that I was sort of taught before.
0: Um, I think also the context of her sons being these, you know, very strong, rugged, worthy kinds of people, right? That's how her son her the first son, that's how he's described in the part that you read, Yodana. And I feel like, right, we're talking about a family that is meritorious right that they are doing the good work so the idea that there is like a i don't know the idea that i know that the, the beginning of it is is interesting right in terms of understanding what it is that she merited but again i'm i'm going to harp on it i think that the end of it is is the powerful part because she did get this benefit but also she had worthy sons who who were you know to begin with worthy of being coined and sure, let's give her credit for raising them that way. Or let's go back to the part of the biology. And maybe it's just, you know, they had the good genes type of thing. But at the end of the day, they were there. They were, they were ready. They were willing. They were able. And it's not just a magic thing. You know, none of these Kohanim Godolin, like only one of them ends up going into the Kodesh Kodashim. It's not that they died. It's that they didn't die.
1: Right. It's that they didn't die. And I, I think that's the important point. Again, I was taught this with a very different context and those stories before. And I think that's always the problem when we sort of take things out of context with with Gemara learning. And I, I think that's something again, you and I've talked about so much. Whenever you're in a sheer or a class and you see a Gemara that really intrigues you, always look it up and look at it because <laughs> you can't always trust exactly. And, and often you'll just be hearing somebody's sort of subjective interpretation, which may be a vet- but recognize there may be other ways to understand it. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on our major podcast. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.